I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, the double-edged sword of free speech. I was, uh, I rebelled against everything and, and everyone, particularly authority figures. Tony McAleer was a white supremacist in the 80s and the 90s. He abandoned those beliefs decades ago and now works to help others leave extremism. But back then, he was a pretty big deal in the movement. I grew up in a comfortable middle-class neighborhood in Vancouver. My father was a doctor. I went to private school and everything. And, and you know, I sort of had a, a privileged upbringing. But what had happened when I was 10 is I walked in on my father with another woman. And that uh, sort of rocked my world uh, psychologically speaking. And the way that uh, that my plummeting grades uh, was dealt with by the school, the Catholic school, was to try and beat the grades back into me. And I became a very angry, angry uh, young, young man. And unfortunately, he found an outlet for his anger in the white supremacist movement. I mean, ultimately, what being in this movement you know, as a follower and as a leader gave me. It, it gave me attention when I felt invisible. It gave me uh, acceptance when I felt unlovable. And it gave me power when I felt weak. And there was lots of street violence as there was always uh, people that took offense to our shirts and pins and uh, slogans. And so there was a, an awful lot of street violence where we beat a lot of people up. We would hand out leaflets on street corners, you know, that's what people did in, before the internet. Um, and eventually I, I started a, a telephone hotline, you know, press one for this, press two for that. My computer could have multiple voicemails like, uh, like you would get when you call a big corporation. And most of them were anti-Semitic in nature. At the time, it didn't matter to me what it prompted, as long as it prompted a reaction. And, and if people got hurt, I didn't care. The ability to speak your mind freely is a cherished right in America, but it can also be, and often is, used to inflict harm. In this era of social media and polarized politics, we are constantly navigating the line between protecting one's right to speak freely and ensuring the well-being of others. Think about how this is playing out on college campuses, where controversial speakers are being shouted down and professors worry about how their students might react to discussing sensitive topics. Or in public K-12 schools, where teachers are prohibited by state lawmakers in some cases from talking about certain things. Or even on newspaper opinion pages and in online community spaces where decisions are happening daily around who gets to say what. This season, Top of Mind is finding fairness. We all want the freedom to express ourselves. But how can we foster the most productive use of this right in our communities? What motivates someone to weaponize their right to speak freely? Tony McAleer grew up studying the way his dad verbally sparred with his drinking buddies for fun. And so that was, that was where my strength was. It wasn't, it wasn't with my fists or, or my boots. And, I could take people that would try and put me down in some way and actually put myself down in a way that was far more funny or get the crowd on my side and then turn them on that person and humiliate that person in front of, in front of a bunch of people. It was sport to me. And it was all about um, ego and dominating other people in, in the arena that I felt most comfortable. He was an angry teen with a sharp tongue in search of an identity just as the punk scene was surging. And I remember uh, being outside my first punk rock concert, Black Flag with Henry Rollins, and these two skinheads walk up to me and I'm wearing my Doc Martens, which were a dime a dozen in England, but very expensive here. And uh, they asked me what size feet I have. I knew they were gonna rob me for my Doc Martens, but my feet were smaller than theirs, so 
it, it didn't happen. But those guys became my best friends. My bullying survival strategy was befriend the bully, become the bully. Uh, in 1984, there was a band called Screwdriver who came out with uh, the first overly racist single. It was called White Power. They said the quiet part out loud. And all of that band's subsequent music became increasingly uh, ideological and, and it, it became a whole music genre. You know, the songs were raw, they were angry, um, but they were embedded with ideology, some overt, some not so, so overt. And... Uh, you know, when you're, you know, yelling racist slogans and white power and Nazi songs and you've got this sort of group camaraderie and and uh, and you're all singing it together, it, it becomes more about an experience with, with the music and there's an emotional element to it and, and uh, you know, a, a sense of belonging. Because ultimately what draws people into these groups is not the ideology. The ideology is the pill you swallow in order to get belonging uh, in order to get acceptance, in order to get community and a sense of purpose or a sense of power. And, I, you know, as much as they terrified me, I was drawn to them. And my, you know, my parents started to say, like, why are you hanging out with these guys? And it took me a while to figure out. But, you know, upon reflection, they had the one thing that I didn't have and that I craved. And that was toughness. But McAleer was a better talker than a fighter. And it wasn't long before others in the movement recognized that. He became the go-to spokesperson for media interviews, even went on the Montel Williams show a couple times. I was far more dangerous with, with my tongue, and I learned that I could exercise power through people. I didn't have to beat people up, but I could make sure they were beaten up. So the um, Canadian Liberty Net, this phone tree answering service that you set up, uh, was the natural extension of that in the um, 90s, right? So this was pre-internet. Um, I mean, did it did it work? Did you did, were a lot of people calling in? Was it a popular service? I think at its peak, after some um, publicity stunts, it was getting three hundred calls a day, and it was a single single line. The messages featured prominent Holocaust deniers and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. The purpose of the phone line was to uh, get people to wake up and see what's you know, this grand conspiracy that's, you know, ruining their lives. You know, Which you believed in, like you, you, you... Which I believed at the time. I absolutely don't believe any of that stuff now, just to set the, yeah. just to set the record straight. Did it ever worry you that, that someone might listen to that and then go out and harm somebody or take some kind of harmful action as a result of what you were putting out there in the world? That wasn't necessarily the in intention, but where I was at, I was so disconnected from my heart, operating from my narcissism and my ego, that I didn't care if that did happen. Pretty quickly, a couple of minority rights groups filed a complaint against McAleer's phone line, arguing that it violated the Canadian Human Rights Act by exposing people to hatred, contempt, or ridicule on the basis of race. A tribunal was scheduled for a few months out, and McAleer was ordered to shut the phone line down in the meantime. But he knew of a place not far away where he could get away with a lot more than he could in Canada. So I moved the computer into a um, closet in a, an office park in Bellingham, Washington, 20 minutes just over the border, and got a phone line there and plugged it in and set that line back up again. And, uh, but the number in Vancouver just gave people the number in the U.S. And we said, you know, the communist party of Canada rules that we, we can't have free speech, but so we have to go to the States. And if you want to hear what we have to say, call there. Um, you know, making reference to communist China and, and, you know, all that kind of hyperbole. But in the United States, there was, there really was no limits. Like free speech was absolute. The stunt got McAleer convicted for contempt of court. He was ordered to pay a $7,500 fine and spend three months in jail. He appealed that all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court, which upheld his contempt conviction, but dropped the fine and reduced his jail sentence to the two days he'd already spent behind bars. And still, McAleer did not shut the phone line down. He just moved it back to Vancouver and toned it down a bit. I've always had a stubborn streak to me, so, so I kept the line and content going, but I was very careful to not go anywhere near another contempt. 
Do you think you would have have ended up in uh, in front of the Supreme Court for the phone line that you were operating if you had been doing that in the United States as a U.S. citizen? Absolutely not. Because, I mean, I, I wouldn't have even had to to lawyer up beforehand. You know, there's there's so much more leeway to say things, even if it hurts another person's feelings. This is an important distinction. Free speech is a constitutional right in the United States. But most countries, 80% of all United Nations members, including Canada, also protect human dignity as a constitutional right. So those countries have to balance two rights that are sometimes at odds. And when a person's speech undermines the dignity of another person, you're more likely to see certain types of speech restricted. It's a tricky balance, though, because Tony McAleer says the Canadian government's efforts to silence him only helped his cause. You know, I, I grew my listener base because of the attempts to shut my phone line down. I thrived off, this, off the attempts at censorship. It gave me a, a, a ton of attention, you know, and look, they're, you know, they're persecuting me and they don't want you to know this information. And uh, when I did shut it down, there was zero pressure on me to, to, to shut it down. And, you know, and since it wasn't generating any attention for me, um, it lost its use for me. So talk to me more about that. What was going on then at this moment that you were starting to disengage and shutting down the Canadian Liberty Net? was one of the steps in that process. What, what had motivated this for you? Yeah, I think there was a lot of, a lot of things going on. I mean, having um, all of this court stuff was, I mean, it was a lot of energy. It was draining. Um, disillusionment was kicking in. And, and, and when you join groups like this, you know, at the beginning, you go through a honeymoon phase. And I went through that, but I was going through disillusionment and I was in a, a very unhealthy relationship. And um, when my daughter was born and my son 15 months later, that really started to change. I started to thaw my my heart and I started to make decisions with for the first time since I couldn't remember when for with somebody else in mind besides me and sort of seeing the impact of, you know, for lack of a better word, my lifestyle was having on them, the friends I was hanging out with, the stuff I was doing. Um, you know, when they were going to preschool, I had my mom take them to preschool so that um, the other parents wouldn't know that that I was their dad. So they it wouldn't interfere with their ability to play with other kids and, and stuff like that. So, you know, when the kids were two and four, uh, me and the mother separated. And when they were four and six, she left the country to pursue a relationship. And, you know, I... I was barely capable of taking taking care of my own life, and there I was with a single father with with two kids, and um, and it's totally unfair. But in the '90s, single dads were like unicorns, and people would say, "Oh, good job, single father! Oh, that's wonderful and stuff," you know. And but I started to get attention, acceptance, and approval, and and a sense of purpose through the identity of being a single father, which felt better than getting it through being a white supremacist leader. And so that that created the ability for me to start to let the other the other go. But I had so much identity wrapped up in the other, it was difficult to let go. He started exploring meditation and ended up meeting a Jewish leadership guru named Dov Baron, who agreed to mentor McAleer in what he calls his healing work. It wasn't enough to leave white supremacy behind. He had to grapple with the harm that he'd caused. Um, one of the things that happened in Vancouver in 1998 was the murder of Normal Singh Gill. And he was a caretaker, a Sikh caretaker, security guard at the local Gurdwara here in, in Syria. And he was beaten to death by five skinheads for no, for no reason. And, and I'd met those guys. I didn't recruit them, but I recruited the guys who recruited them. And I remember getting invited to come on a talk radio show for the Indo-Canadian community here in Vancouver to talk about that. And, you know, I had to acknowledge that, can I say that I had 0.0000000% to do with Normal's death? And if I'm really honest with myself, I can't say, I can't say, I don't, I can't tell you what the percentage is, but it's not, it's not absolute zero. 
Can you make amends for that? And if so, how? That's a really great question. Um, it's got to be more than just saying sorry, right? And, and so if, we, if I look at what was the community that I harmed the most, it was the Jewish community, by far, hands down. And one of the things Dov taught me how to do was how to, how to apologize. And so I was meeting with a Jewish friend and, and I asked him, how did my anti-Semitism and, and its activities affect you? And he told me this story, which I've heard many, many times from, from other Jewish people whose parents came from Europe. They said they grew up with a suitcase beside the front door with passport and money and, and some belongings in case the Nazis ever came for them again. And I had to acknowledge that because of my activities and the activities of people like me, his mom could never put that suitcase away. And so <laughs> he, did, he did what every good Jew does when, they, when they've met uh, an ex-neo-Nazi as he calls up his rabbi. Um, so I go and meet the rabbi and, and we actually uh, schedule for me to come in with, with Dov, my counselor, who's also Jewish, to do an event in front of the congregation called the Tshuva of a White Supremacist. Tshuva means to return in Hebrew. And it means the return to God and our fellow man that's made through acts of atonement. And, and uh, you know, during that hour and a half I was there, I told them about the very first anti-Semitic act that I ever did was to put a National Front sticker on the front door of that, that synagogue, the very one we were sitting in 30 years earlier, and that it, it had all come full circle. And... Uh, you know, there was when people heard that, there was like, you could hear the intakes of, of breath. But, you know, that congregation uh, embraced me. I was terrified. I was thought I was going to get yelled at or people be, you know, angry. And, and uh, I was going to feel judge and shame. But they embraced me. And not long around that time, I had the opportunity to visit Auschwitz to, you know, confront what I believed in, to confront myself. Um, and I spent 15 hours over two days, one-on-one -on -one with a guide, which we filmed, by the way, and the film's coming out this spring. And uh, that was a, a remarkable, remarkable experience. And, and that film was, that whole process was my, my tshuva. And this movie is my atonement, my amends, my effort to undo all the dark, negative, hateful energies I put into the world with... Uh, love, compassion, and, and atonement. Tony McAleer is author of The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist's journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. His new movie, also called The Cure for Hate, bearing witness to Auschwitz, is currently touring film festivals. There is no question that Tony McAleer's speech during his extremist years was both damaging and insidious. He says so himself. And obviously, it's an extreme example, but I have to admit that there have been times when I have been so eager to speak my mind or vent my frustration that I've said some pretty hurtful things. That's not the kind of person I want to be. And I don't really want to live in a community where saying whatever you want, no matter how harmful, is considered a virtue. So where's the line? Freedom of speech is not simply applicable to speech that we embrace or admire. It also applies to speech we abhor and denounce. Okay, but why? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We live in a representative democracy that's premised on the exchange of ideas and robust debate to get at the best truth. This is Danielle Weatherby. She's a professor of law at the University of Arkansas. And I write about the First Amendment and speech tolerance and some of the modern-day implications of the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence. Meaning court rulings. When you say jurisprudence, so like Supreme Court decisions over the last century. Exactly. Um, you know, starting from the early 1900s with Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Louis Brandeis, um, 
they really opined that this freedom of speech that the framers envisioned included the free trade of ideas and said that within the First Amendment lies this important processes of education, the power to reason, and said that public discussion is a political duty. And how then has the court thought about the the harm that expression can do? You know, is it is it like anything goes and that's always going to be better for us as a society? No, n- no. And no constitutional right is absolute. And it's always a balance between what's in the public good and what harms the public and governmental interests and public safety. And so over the years, the Supreme Court has carved out some categorical exemptions hmm. to First Amendment protection. The idea being that in these instances, the regulation of free speech or the press, is intended to protect citizens from harm, but not necessarily from suffering from offense. Instead, what it's done is said that speech that incites lawless action, violence, chaos, danger to someone's physical well-being, that speech can be regulated and censored. So it's not enough to just suffer personal offense. Can you share an example of a case where somebody was harmed emotionally by cruel or offensive speech, and yet the court said, actually, that speech needs to be protected? So um, there's a case from, I believe it was 2010, called Snyder v. Phelps. And in this case, the family of a deceased Marine, Matthew Snyder, sued members of the Westboro Baptist Church who picketed at his funeral. Protesters held signs that said, thank God for dead soldiers um, and other, um, you know, highly offensive messages. Um, And ultimately, the court said that the church member's speech was protected, notwithstanding the distasteful and repugnant nature of the words. The court talks about a heckler's veto. That is a term that's used throughout um, the the case law that describes a, a vetoing, a silencing of an idea or a thought that's expressed that is subjectively offensive to the listener. The court has been very cautious not to sanction a heckler's veto because of the slippery slope that that could cause in terms of undermining those very values inherent in the First Amendment that I discussed earlier. And that's why in that case, the court said that, yes, the speech was repugnant, it was odious, it was harmful, but we're going to allow it to stand because once we deem this speech to be unworthy, then what's next? Does free speech apply in every environment uh, in our lives in the country? No, no, it doesn't. One of the most common misconceptions about the First Amendment is that it governs private actors. My kids say to me all the time, you can't punish me for the words I say in the house because I have a First Amendment right to speak my mind. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, no, you don't. The First Amendment only governs government actors, public actors. So in private spaces, whether we're talking in private workplaces or organizations, and I'll use social media, for example, Facebook and Twitter, Those are private companies that can regulate speech outside of the First Amendment umbrella. So an employer can regulate what's said by its employees. A a leader of a church can regulate what's said within the confines of the church. All of that is legal according to at least, it doesn't run afoul of the First Amendment right to free speech. Exactly. It doesn't run afoul of the First Amendment unless the private actor is somehow working or representing a government actor. Okay, so the constitutional right to free speech only protects us from being censored by the government or by someone who represents the government or gets government funding. Which is why so many of these fights over free speech are playing out on college campuses right now. On the one hand, they are government actors because even private universities accept government funding in the form of student aid and research grants. 
But on the other hand... Institutions of higher education that are receiving federal funds are subject to Title VI um, of the Civil Rights Act and Title IX of the Civil Rights Act. Title VI um, prohibits certain types of discrimination based on race and um, national origin, and Title IX prohibits discrimination based on gender. Colleges and universities risk losing federal funds if they allow harassment to happen on campus. And the U.S. Department of Education includes verbal comments in its definition of harassment. So many schools have felt compelled to create speech codes and punish those who say things others find offensive. Danielle Weatherby has felt that pressure mounting in her time as a university law professor. I find that the generations of students that I've seen from my very first year teaching, which was 10 years ago, have become a little bit less resilient, less able to withstand offense in in speech. And so it's something I'm acutely aware of that I worry about in my own teaching, in the words I say in the classroom, and in the exchanges that we have between students in the classroom. But I also believe institutions of higher education have a responsibility to train, you know, the future leaders of society to engage in civil discourse. And part of that is learning speech tolerance. And so whether we're talking about a humanities class or a philosophy class or even a a business class, um, you know, the topics that are discussed in the classroom may invoke certain visceral responses in students. And I believe it's the professor's job to try and um, curate an environment that makes it okay to have that response, but to um, manage the response with tolerance, with empathy, Mm. and with a lack of um, kind of jumping to conclusions. I think too often we have been conditioned to jump to conclusions about the speaker simply because of an idea that they express. And I remind my students, I try to as often as I can, remind them that a single idea does not define the the entire character of a person. And I say that at the beginning of most classroom classes where I know we're going to have some, you know, robust debate on perhaps some controversial topics. And I believe that as the professor, I set the tone for that. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I don't set limits on the subjects that we discuss and the nature of those discussions. I let them unfold organically. And where I have to intervene, I do. The situation is different, though, when the students in the classroom are kids. In K-12 schools, Weatherby says the Supreme Court allows more censorship of what's discussed. There are all kinds of factors that um, impact the Supreme Court's speech jurisprudence in the K-12 setting. The fact that teachers and administrators have a captive audience, that there are compulsory education laws requiring students to go to school during the school day, and that we're dealing with minors. Mm -hmm. So those three factors are all very important and critical in distinguishing between, you know, primary and secondary schools and higher ed. So in a public, especially in a public school setting in K through 12, um, so the courts, I mean, You see some states passing laws that say teachers can talk about this, but they can't say this, or you can't have these certain kinds of discussions. And and those, that does not violate free speech so far as we know it? Or what what, what has the Supreme Court said about the ability, say, of a state legislature to limit the kinds of expression that can take place in a classroom when it's K through 12? That's a really, really Great question. The Supreme Court has said very little. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, there are local control issues when it comes to developing and setting curriculum. Uh, the schools have a lot of control over curriculum development. I used to represent school districts when I was in practice, and I worked with my districts in New York State to develop curriculum, and there was a lot of discretion offered to uh, educators in the K-12 through setting. But I think what you're referring to um, more precisely are the laws we're seeing popping up, like the law in Florida that Governor DeSantis passed, regulating the types of topics that 
teachers could speak to their students about. Well, I have a problem with that because I think that that affects not the student's speech, but the, the teacher's speech and could have First Amendment consequences. After all, public school teachers, their employers are government actors. And to kind of put a muzzle on a teacher in that way, especially if, for example, a student were to approach a trusted teacher, want to confide in that teacher with something that is on their mind or troubling them, and let's say it's on a topic that the teacher is not allowed to discuss, that could harm the the student too. Mm. Because there's a relationship between a teacher and a student sometimes that is developmentally nurturing. And I think we lose sight of that when we have these blanket um, prohibitions on topics that can be discussed in the classroom. Mm. Certainly if the speech is disruptive and detracts from the pedagogical objectives of the school, then the school can punish a student for that speech or censor that speech. Hmm. Um, if it has to do with drug drug usage and, and some other categories, then that is considered to be harmful to the K-12 setting. Danielle Weatherby's research highlights that most policies aimed at deciding who can say what, regardless of who is trying to implement them and why, can have unintended consequences. So it's against that backdrop that I coined this term speech narcissism. And speech narcissism reflects this kind of egotism or fixation with one's own worldview and life experiences that makes one essentially unable to listen to opposing viewpoints. It manifests a kind of a lack of empathy and understanding of differences. And she sees this happening across the political spectrum, whether it's people on the right railing against political correctness and asserting their right to say what they want, or those on the left calling for people to be fired or canceled for using words they find offensive. There's a lack of self-awareness in that kind of my way or the highway approach to speech. And I think it is very harmful. Um, Instead of looking for common ground, which I believe in so much that we all have, or remembering that a single idea does not necessarily define the character of a whole person, a speech narcissist will immediately characterize the speaker as all bad. And that's what causes the ultimate harm that shuts down discourse, that silences people, that chills speech. And... If we can't talk to one another, if we can't communicate, then there's no forward progress. Danielle Weatherby is a professor of law at the University of Arkansas. Thank you so much for taking time. That that was great. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was so much fun. I appreciate you having me. So we've established that the right to free speech in America only protects us from being silenced by the government or someone representing the government. But we spend most of our lives in private spaces, at home, at work, on websites owned by private companies. In those cases, it's basically up to the owner of the space to decide what kind of speech is acceptable and what's not. Deciding where to draw that line can lead to deep divisions. Is there any way to foster free expression in a way that's productive for communities? We definitely have a responsibility as members of the community to try to figure out why people think the way they do. Otherwise, what's the point? If you're just gonna live in your own world where people agree with you, first of all, that's boring. Second of all, it gives you the false assumption that you are right when you don't challenge yourself. So you have to go outside your own head and outside your own circle um, to find truth. It's Amelia Robinson's job to decide who gets to voice their opinions in a major US newspaper. How does she draw the line? I'm Julie Rose, this is Top of Mind. I don't want to run an opinion page where everything the reader sees is something that they feel comfortable with or is something that they feel themselves. I want to challenge people. I'm Amelia Robinson. I'm the opinion and community engagement editor for the Columbus Dispatch. That's so interesting that you want people to be challenged. I bet you hear from a lot of people who are like, I didn't like what you published. How dare you publish that? How do you respond to someone when they complain? 
Well, it's very true. I do get um, responses from people from all sides of the political spectrum. My thing is this. Um, I don't want you to read something that offends you to your core, but I want you to see um, another person's viewpoint. Can you give me an example of what you will not allow in the opinion pages of the Columbus Dispatch? I won't um, allow anything that's going to take away anyone's humanity. Um, and that's, you know, no homophobia, no racism, no sexism, no straight up uh, hate speech, no um, anti-woman vibes. Like you can you can have your viewpoints, but you cannot uh, take away somebody's humanity. So what do you do when there is legislation that's being considered either locally or on the state or the federal level that some people consider to be um, homophobic or, or anti-woman in some way, right, or misogynistic? Do, do you allow people to express opinions in support of that legislation when some people view that legislation as inherently harmful to people's humanity? We do, actually. The thing is, you have to back up anything you you um, you submit to us if we're going to run it. You have mm-hmm. to be able to justify the things that you um, believe, the things you're pushing. Otherwise, it's nonsense, um, and we don't want to do that. In other words, if you have a piece of legislation that you're pushing that is, um, you know, anti-trans or something like that, you can push it all you want, but can you back up the things you're saying with actual facts? I spent a, a great deal of time checking sources. We require people when they submit columns to have um, links to where they got it from. We uh, back up everything. Do you give elected officials more leeway, though, when, when they submit a letter or a guest opinion? Um, that do, do they get a little bit more freedom to say things without being fact-checked or edited by you? See, they are fact-checked, but they do have more leeway because they are the people who are making decisions. And I think it's important for voters and readers to understand why lawmakers say they are doing the things they say. They do get more leeway. Um, And and sometimes that upsets readers. But the bottom line is we need to hear from our elected officials. And when they mess up, we need to hear them, you know, hold them accountable. Can you think of an example? Oh, yeah. Um, There was a piece of legislation around gerrymandering. The um, Senate president he had his point of view, which was counter to our editorial board and counter to many of the guest columnists that we have featured. But because of his position as a Senate president, his uh, viewpoints hold more weight. So you need to know what they are. And uh, a lot of people did not like that. We printed his um, his piece. But at the end of the day, he is one of the people in our state who makes the decisions. So it's important to know where he's coming from. Was it just that his opinion was different than yours and then and from the editorial board, or was that he was basing his opinion on facts that you couldn't but that he couldn't back up or that you were not able to find backup for? His opinion was counter to a lot of our readers' con- uh, opinions about gerrymandering, where he basically justified um, some of the actions that they wanted to take um, around redistricting. So, you know, look, at, you know, it's not my opinion that matters. You know, it's everybody's everybody has a right to express themselves. You try to err on the side of letting people express themselves. Yes, I do. I I most definitely do, Um, because I think it's important to know what each other for democracy's sake. You know, their discourse and arguments and all that sort of thing. That's part of what we are as Americans. You don't you, you don't have to be disagreeable to disagree. And I think a lot of times we forget that. Now, obviously. I'm not talking kubaya. We're talking big issues in our nation, right? But you can still you can still have discussions without being hurtful, nasty, disrespectful, all those things. That is definitely possible. We've done it and we can continue to do it. Amelia, thank you so much for sharing your experience and insights with me today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Amelia Robinson is opinion and engagement editor for the Columbus Dispatch in Ohio. So what is the key to disagreeing without being disagreeable? The word civility seems to come up a lot these days. Does being civil mean avoiding conflict as much as possible? Can a passionate debate be civil? What about a disruptive protest? Civility, sometimes people will define it as, well, I get to speak and you don't. But really, it's about empowered citizenship, uh, which means upholding, challenging, and uh, standing for society. 
This is David Plazas, Director of Opinion and Engagement for The Tennessean and the rest of the USA Today newspaper network in Tennessee. For the past five years, he has led a project called Civility Tennessee. When we started the Civility Tennessee project, I asked this question to my readers. This was right before Thanksgiving of 2017. It was the first Thanksgiving of the Trump administration. And I asked, what are you going to talk about at the Thanksgiving table? And I received a whole load of of letters and emails from folks saying, you know, so in some cases, we don't know what to say, or we're going to try to avoid these conversations, or we want to find a way to model better behavior. And so um, our product, uh, so to speak, is is a couple things. One of them is events, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, book signings or, uh, you know, uh, book discussions with the community on a particular issue, uh, or whether it's uh, debates and, and forums for politicians. At the same time, it's articles. So it's encouraging people to use their voices in a way uh, that will help persuade instead of attack, uh, first and foremost. Because civility is not one mode of doing something. It's, it's a question of how do we as citizens how can we be in the same space together and talk? And sometimes it's not possible. You know, we, we have gone through this process of helping people understand and listen to each other and then uh, see each other as human and understanding. You know, it's there are things that we can agree upon and can talk about, but there are other things where, you know, protest is something that's that's, that's legal and, and, and I certainly encourage it when people are angry. I encourage people to go to their city council meetings. My biggest frustration, to be honest with you, is the apathy when it comes to local elections. You know, that we have you know 10 to 20 percent turnout. That to me is an incredibly uncivil act. I, I, I tell people, you know, the traditional definition of civility, at least in the dictionary, has to do with politeness and courtesy. But I like to use the original uh, definition, which comes from the Latin kiwitas, which is about the role of the citizen. And the role of the citizen is not to be a doormat. The role of the citizen is to be someone who stands up for what's right who challenges society when necessary and also upholds society so that we respect the rights of all. On, on the notion of civility, it's uh, y- you're in the middle as we are recording in early April this conversation. David Plassus, you're in the middle as a state of a debate, a very public display of negotiating what civility means and what decorum means. Would you describe for us how it, how it came to pass that on April 6th, the Republican-controlled legislature of Tennessee expelled two, two Democrats who are both uh, black men? Yes. So March 27th was the mass shooting that killed six people at the Covenant School, including three nine-year-olds. Uh, March 30th, there was a big protest at the Capitol and hundreds of protesters made it into the gallery. At that time, the three lawmakers, they went into the center of the the House floor called the well and with a megaphone were encouraging the protesters to demand uh, gun reform uh, or uh, reform against gun violence. And uh, on Monday, uh, just that following Monday, it was when the House said we have these articles of expulsion against these uh, lawmakers for having broken the rules. Uh, You know, and and within days, they they had the vote and two of them were gone. I had written an editorial a few days uh, before the vote, basically saying, look, you know, the, the House should show some grace. Yeah, they broke the rules, and that's serious, and we, we shouldn't, you know, say that it's okay to do that. But the the punishment was not proportional to the offense. You know, people are watching Tennessee very carefully right now because it's been framed as an attack on democracy. And, you know, I am very careful to use hyperbole like that, but, but, th- but there is something scary about this that I think President Obama, in a tweet, said that, you know, expelling someone for just doing their job as an elected official is an affront to civility and is an affront to democracy. And I, I, I agree with that, that point. Both of the lawmakers who were expelled by their state house colleagues were unanimously reinstated by their local city councils to fill their old seats on an interim basis until special elections are held. While David Plassus opposed the expulsions in the columns he wrote for the Tennessean, he was also actively encouraging people who disagreed with him to submit their own opinions for publication. You know, sometimes as an opinion degree, you're a referee and a moderator because you have to make decisions that are not always going to be popular, that are going to challenge people's point of view, and going to challenge your own point of view. And if we can't be, if we continue to have these echo chambers where all we're doing is saying, well, right views go here, left views go here, we don't create the opportunity for exchange. Um, You know, it's one of those difficult things because oftentimes I've I've heard in the past from people say you should never platform anything that is hateful. But the, the moment that you stop accepting any opinions that violate your 
perspective. You know, you're in very dangerous territory. I often think back in the 1960s that many black voices were marginalized because they weren't considered, you know, views of, of the norm. You know, and, and those who were fighting against segregation were seen as rebel rousers. And today we see them as civil rights heroes. And so we have to be very careful to use our platforms in ways that are, first of all, responsible, but also responsive to what is happening in our communities. And civility has been used as a cudgel against especially communities of color and, and women and underrepresented communities who have wanted to advocate for their rights. And it's really interesting because Tennessee was the pivotal state to in, enacting the 19th Amendment that uh, allowed for women's suffrage. And you look back and see how uncivil some of the language was, but it was in the sake of, you know, trying to assert one's humanity and agency. Are there certain things you will not allow people to say? Like, where do you draw the line? Sure. Where we draw the line comes from when someone impugns the dignity of another individual or another human being. Um, you know, we had an example just recently where um, someone wanted to write a letter that was very transphobic. And I, I respond to that, you know, I, I get that you have a, strong opinion on this, but for you to dehumanize somebody because of their gender identity, I mean, that's that's not something that we're interested in our platform, but I gave the person the opportunity to, to revise it. Uh, but instead, this person went to a conservative publication and claimed that we were censoring his voice when in fact, that wasn't the case. And I'm, I'm very adamant that if I think something needs to be changed, it, it, you know, I, I work with the authors to do so. I don't want to change somebody's point of view, but I want someone to think about if there's something that is either inaccurate or if it's too long or if it's um, you know, dehumanizing to somebody, here's what I would prefer that you say, or would you consider writing something like this? How often do people actually agree to that? Well, it's amazing how if you ask people nicely, 90% of the time they'll say yes. I mean, my experience. Hmm. I mean, because I don't go and say, you know, I don't like what you said. Rather, it's like, you know, here, here's where our standards are. Here's where I think this could be, you know, done better. And if you want to talk about it over the phone, let's, let's do it. And, and that usually tends to work. And so I, I think the, the ability to have relationships and be accessible is extremely important to us, especially those of us who are at the local level, because then they know they can pick up the phone that will answer it and we'll have that conversation. Even if they're not happy about the initial email, we'll at least work through it. Do we really need what you're doing today when there's social media where when I can I can get all the perspectives I might I might want by doing some googling and by getting on Twitter and Facebook what um what, what's the what's the value of a like a moderated and mediated public square like the opinion pages of your paper are when we have the public square of social media today yeah, I mean, I, I can say that, that you know, people vote with their feet and they're voting with their feet when it comes to subscribing to us. They're seeking some sense of order in the chaos. I mean, the reality is that social media is chaotic uh, and, you know, some people like that. But at the same time, there are a lot of people, and I would say a lot more people, who want a way to basically take a moment to step back and try to really understand what is happening in their community. You know, our, our goal is to... Uh, explain and affirm and at the same time challenge people, you know, and then connect people as well. This is something that social media has not been able to successfully do, which is use its platforms to convene and connect people in ways that are very meaningful, whether it's through a good news type story about people helping each other in the community, or whether it's through an opinion piece that helps people think about an issue in a particularly different way. Um, we also have a closed Facebook group called Civility Tennessee, which is a really interesting experiment of people who were so tired of being attacked on social media. And the reason we have kept it closed is because it, it is an intimate space. We, and we invite anyone who wants to come to it who is willing to agree to three simple questions, three simple yeses. You know, are you going to be civil? Are you going to, uh, you know, uphold these principles? And will you call out incivility uh, in this in a way that's productive? Uh, and I've only had to kick out one person in five years. Uh, you know, one person has voluntarily left. But for the most part, people want a space where they can feel that they can experiment with ideas and not be attacked and at the same time understand and learn. David Palacios is the director of opinion and engagement for The Tennessean and a number of other newspapers in the state that are part of the USA Today network. So let's get practical for just a moment here finally. How can we improve our ability to disagree without being disagreeable? To fully embrace the important right to free speech but resist the urge to become speech narcissists. University of Arkansas law professor Danielle Weatherby gets these questions so often, she has developed a handy acronym. 
The acronym is LEADER, L-E-A-D-E-R. The L stands for listening intentionally. This means shutting down that impulse to craft your internal rebuttal in your mind. We all do it. We're listening, but we're listening only so that we can prove the other side wrong. If you're doing that, you are hijacking the discussion, focused on your own thoughts rather than the speaker's. The E in leader stands for empathize. And the idea is that we don't judge each other for having different points of view. We simply try to understand where each other's coming from. A is for acknowledge. Acknowledge both the common ground and what's potentially a roadblock. So roadblocks are word choice, a generalization, a factual inaccuracy. Identify those and put them aside. And that's where D comes in, defer. Set aside any secondary sticking points that aren't ultimately necessary to the conversation. You know, maybe later on you can follow up with corrections, but it's more important that you come to some common ground. And then E is engage. Engaging with the big ideas, the structure of the person's argument. And R is respect each other's differences. If we all look the same, it'd be very boring, right? And so I tell my students, I tell my kids, I tell my loved ones to find beauty in that, to have respect for it. And I'm hoping with like with this tool that maybe we can engage in more civil conversations on matters of public concern. That acronym also happens to be a pretty apt description of what we are asking you to do as you listen to Top of Mind each week. We tackle topics that trigger big emotions, we know that, and we intentionally search for perspectives that will challenge us. It's uncomfortable sometimes, but sticking with that discomfort can lead to more clarity or empathy, which can help us be better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates for the things we care about. Our Stick With It conversation series is a chance to hear what that looks like in daily life, too. And we've heard some great stories this season. We'd love to hear yours. Email topofmind at byu.edu about a time when you felt challenged and you had the urge to get defensive, but you chose to stick with that discomfort instead. What happened? That email is topofmind at byu.edu. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by Samuel Benson, Vanessa Goodman, and me, with help from James Hoops. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Christian Mocatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.